Nine years ago was the last time it happened in any significant way. But it was 19, I mean, should, should say 2011, when Harold Camping, a radio evangelist from out in California, predicted that Jesus Christ would return for his church on May 21st, 2011. Now, he not only predicted it, he believed it. He and his ministry spent $100 million publicizing the date of Jesus' rapture of the church, coming for the church. Purchased park benches, messages to go on park benches around the nation, billboards, thousands of them, pamphlets, by the thousands, personal tour around the country. And many believed that Jesus indeed was coming back on May 21st of that year. Some people believed to the extent that they sold their homes and gave the money to the ministry. Say, how did they come up with a hundred, hundred million? Well, that's how. But when Jesus did not come, he changed the date. In fact, he changed the date 13 times after that. Until people stopped sending him any money. Why is it so wrong to set a date for the return of the Lord Jesus. Well, first of all, it conflicts with Scripture. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, clearly says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now that reference tells us it's not for us to know. But yet down through the centuries, over and over and over again, someone has confidently predicted at some date, some point in time, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. When someone does that, not only do they rob people As Harold Camping did, unwittingly or not, he robbed people who went so far as to sell their homes and send him the money. He not only robbed them financially, but he robbed them, more importantly, of hope. And I'm not just talking about hope after the fact. But at the moment anyone sets a date, they have taken away... Your hope in mind for that day. Think about it. If someone could come up to me, and and if they possibly could, and and I'm sure they can't, but supposing they could come to me and say, I can convince you that Jesus will come back in one year from today. 
And here's the proof. And it was, it was very, uh, convincing. I would tell them, please get away from me. I don't want to know the day. You've just robbed me of the hope of the return of Jesus Christ for 12 months. That's why the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent. Now that word means it could happen at any moment. Even a moment from now. And that is our hope. That is our joy. That is our foundation to face everything that's going on in this world today and tomorrow and the next day and next month. When you set a date, you rob people of that hope. And then there's that whole segment of Christianity that never have a thought about his coming back. And they have lost hope. Down through the centuries, there's many in the name of Christ that have said, well, it's more important, you know, what you do today, you know. And these Christians who think about, you know, uh, pie in the sky by and by, you know, that that's just, you know, that doesn't matter. What matters is right now and, and what we do and what's going on. But when you take away the hope, it changes the way we can handle life and deal with life. And live life as we should today. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, he was leaving them. Now he would rise from the dead three days later, but then 40 days later he would ascend to heaven and they effectively then were on their own. Uh, of course, the Holy Spirit was sent, but he, he personally was leaving. And he says, look, don't, don't be upset about this. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he said, look, in my father's house are many mansions. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again to receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. That's what kept them going. That's what kept their nose to the grindstone, so to speak, when the days looked bleak, when the persecutions arose. Every day, every moment of every day, there was the prospect, there was the comfort that Jesus Christ might come. And if he doesn't come today, maybe tomorrow. Now look at 1 Thessalonians 4, this very familiar passage of Scripture, verses 13 to 18. It's so familiar that uh, we read it here in Baptist circles at almost every funeral or graveside service. Paul says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep. We, we know how it begins, and, and those are the, those are the exciting Truths we're going to get to in a minute. But I want you to go down to verse 18 and look at there. What he says there. Therefore, he says, here's the conclusion. Here's what I want you to take away from this truth that Jesus could come back at any moment. And he's coming back for the church. And he's going to remove us from this world. Here's the thing I want you to take away from that. Therefore, comfort one another 
with these words. It is our comfort. It is our greatest comfort. It is our stay in the worst of times. And I'm not sure that we're living in the worst of times. I don't have a whole lot of uh, perspective. I've only lived for a, a short while. But I suspect, in many ways, it couldn't be a whole lot worse. It seems as though society is coming apart at the seams. Threats abound on every hand, whether it be from a virus or some movement, some issue that's gripping the nation, such as it is now. But you see, for those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope has not been removed. Our comfort has not been taken away. These things, as disturbing as they are, should not move us like it does others in fear. But we have a hope. Jesus is coming back, maybe today. He is our greatest comfort, and his return then makes that true. Not anticipating his return means no comfort. Setting a date for some sounds exciting, and boy, that's great to anticipate that. I know that only leads to all kinds of strange things. Like quitting your job and selling your home and giving away everything. Anticipate, not anticipating his return means no comfort. Setting a date for his return robs people of their comfort. The promise then that we have of Christ's return is our greatest comfort in life, day to day, moment to moment. I want to give you four reasons why this is true based on what Paul wrote here to the Thessalonian church. And what he writes, he writes in response to some misunderstandings they had or uh, misguided Concepts they had about the second coming. They knew of the second coming. Paul had obviously addressed it when he was there, but they, they just they just didn't seem to understand it all and put it all together. Now we can say, well, those you know those Thessalonians, they were just a little dense. Well, well, no, not really. I mean, think about it. Here we are, two thousand years later, and you can't hardly find any consensus one church to the next. Uh, when it comes to what the scripture clearly teaches about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's some that say, well, you know, um, I, I don't think Jesus is coming until, till after the tribulation period. When, when, and then there's only going to be one coming. And, he, and you know, and other, others will say, no, well, now there's just going to be a, some kind of general, uh, general resurrection. And when the Lord comes back way in the end of things. And in the meantime, well, all we got to look forward to is the, the, the trash and the mess and the, and the threats and the fear that this world gives us in the meantime. And Paul said, no, you have a comfort every day. Jesus is coming for you. Not just for the church. We think oh, he's coming for his bride. That's true. He's coming for you. You and you and you and me. Personally. 
And the reasons that they could not quite put together in Thessalonica, he puts in print. And I'm so thankful that he did, because we need to understand them anew today. Let's look at these reasons. Number one, the day of Jesus' return will be a day of resurrection. A day of resurrection. Now, when we use the term resurrection, we're talking about the dead coming back to life physically, bodily, just like Jesus did on the third day. A resurrection. Listen, because he conquered death, because he came out of that grave, we can look forward to a complete and full victory over death by faith in him. And the day that that will happen is the day he comes in the clouds. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, that euphemism there, that, that is a way of saying those that have died. It's akin to us saying, well, you know, so-and-so uh, passed away. They died. Physically, their body died. They're dead. See, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who, who, those of you in the church, in Thessalonica, your friends, your family, your fellow believers that have died. You see, they were all excited to hear about the fact that Jesus was coming. But as so many, I think, misunderstood in that first century, they thought it would be really, really soon. Look. You remember the old song? Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or night. That's not true. <laughs> He's coming, but it may not be soon. It may be a hundred years from now. The fact is, though, and the point is, what we got to understand, soon to us should mean at any moment. We don't know the date. It's not tomorrow. It's, it probably uh, could be... Uh, any day you could think of in history going forward. They, they kind of thought it was something that, bam, is going to be there in no time soon. And, and as time passed, Paul went away. As time passed, some of their number died. They said, oh, whoa. It didn't sound like a trumpet, but I don't know. <laughs> you never know, you know. But some of their number had died. And they thought, oh no, they missed it. Jesus hasn't come back yet. They didn't have all the facts together. No, Paul says, look, I don't want you to be worried about this. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, those who have no hope are unbelievers. I feel so sorry for families when there's a funeral and, and, and we put someone in a casket and we put them in the ground and they, there's no assurance there's no hope of eternal life for that person. 
I always in my mind say, well, I hope maybe at the last moment, maybe at the last second, maybe, although they gave no indication of belief in Jesus, maybe they did put their faith in him. They heard the message and, and we all hope and pray that's the case. And, and maybe we'll get to heaven and find out that has been the case sometimes. But oh, what a, what a difference it is when we come to the day when we say goodbye to someone we care about and we don't have any assurance of their salvation. Or whole families that are unbelievers that don't go to church. What, what it must be like for them to, to say goodbye for the last time. You see, we don't do that. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's a first-class condition in the original language. That means Paul is saying, and we do believe this. Paul's assuming that all of his readers believe this, because that's what he's taught them. In fact, we could translate this with the English word since. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So when Jesus comes back, every believer that has died, whose body has went into that grave, will come back with the Lord. You say, how could that be? They're in the grave. Look, they're in two places. In a sense, their bodies are still in the grave, but their spirits have already went to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul has taught this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So when, when, uh, when a person dies and their, their spirit, the immaterial part that God created and put in that physical body, departs and goes to be with the Lord immediately. And they're in the presence of God. And they're in the, they have the joy of the Lord. They're in heaven. But, the, but their victory is not complete. When Jesus comes back, their spirits are coming back with him. And then their bodies are coming out of the ground. And there's going to be a resurrection and a reunion of body and spirit that will make their victory complete. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say, verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. What's that mean rise first? Their, their bodies are coming out of the ground. There is a resurrection going to take place before living believers are caught up to be with the Lord. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the day of the Lord's coming is a day of resurrection. Now, Revelation 21 verse 4 tells us that plainly. And uh, there, there's a lot of uh, real joy in this verse. We use this verse uh, a lot of times, I do at least, in funerals as well. Speaking of those that will be in heaven, resurrected bodily as Jesus has, 
When we go to be there in that final place of his building, remember he said, I go and prepare a place for you. When we enter into that place, the new Jerusalem, there's a descriptive verse in Revelation 21.4 that says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are passed away. Take those four things out of life, and what do you have? No more death, no more grief, no more crying, no emotional pain, no physical pain. Wow. Isn't that what everybody wants? You see, unbelievers want that. They just want it here and now, and they want it on their own terms, and they want it apart from the authority of God, and without being saved and born again, and repenting and turning to Jesus Christ. But we have that in Christ. We have that promise. We have that certainty. We have that blessing. That is our comfort. Remember when you was a child? I remember when I was a child and mom would make pie. I love pie. Now, I like cake, but I love pie. Now, as I've told a lot of you young people, especially, there's only two kinds of pies I really like. That's hot and cold. (laughs) My dad used to tell me that all the time when I was a kid. I particularly like cherry pie. That's hard to find these days. And I really like peach pie. I like all the rest of them, too, just about as well. But those were two of my favorites at home when Mom would make them. And she'd set them up to cool when you'd see that pie sitting there. But you knew. No pie till after supper. And that meant you had to eat your supper. But I tell you what, that pie sitting up there, cooling, that made that stuff on that plate I didn't like. Okay. <laughs> I'll choke it down somehow. Because that pie is awaiting. If you don't eat your, if you don't eat your plate, if you don't clean it, you don't get any pie. Listen, it's the same motivation for us. All the, all the garbage we deal with, all the pain we go through, all the agony, all the suffering, all the disappointment, all the depression, all the, the mistreatment, all the injustice of this world, all the, 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 these things that just leave us so tired of it all. Dealing with all of that. <clears throat> uh, it's not all that bad when you realize what's waiting after. See, that's our comfort. That's our hope. The anticipated day of resurrection. Then secondly, the coming of the Lord Jesus will be the event of Christ's return. The event of Christ's return. <laughs> well, that isn't that what we'll be talking about. Being a little redundant here, but I, I can't just, I can't get past this because it's going to be a day like no other day. Let's look at verse 14 again. For if, meaning since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain 
shall be caught up together with them in the air. The Lord, not only, not only did Paul doesn't just say, and the Lord's going to come, the Lord himself is coming. There's an old story about two trucker buddies driving the same truck and they'd trade off so they could keep driving long ways and They they were interviewing for a job, and the guy was doing the interviewing, you know, to truck the merchandise. He said to the one guy, he said, what if you were going down a really, really steep hill and your brakes went out, and you tried everything you could, and you could not get the brakes to work, and you were coming to the bottom, and there's a steep grade and, and a curve at the bottom, what would you do? They said, I'd wake old Roscoe up in the back. The guy said, well, what good would that do? He said, well, it wouldn't do any good at all. But said, Roscoe, I've never seen a wreck like this before. You've never seen anything like this before. The world is not. But yet the world will be oblivious to it. We will see it. Now, when Jesus comes seven years later... The world will see it, (laughs) and it'll be even more dramatic. But this is something here. Can you imagine one day, when you don't think about it, maybe, walking down the street, going about your job, driving down the road, sitting in church, mowing the yard. Jesus is there. He's in the sky, and you're, you're rising to meet him in the air. I can't even begin to imagine what that's really going to be like. What I mostly can't imagine is what he will be like. Now he tells us in his word what he's like, but to experience the perfect, pure righteousness of God Almighty, be in his presence, that's beyond real ability to comprehend. The Lord himself will descend. And heaven puts an exclamation point on it. With a shout. Now that's a great word in the Greek that usually used to, to uh, speak of a command given in the military sense. Remember when Jesus walked up to the grave of Lazarus, John chapter 11, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, Lazarus come hopping out of that grave and them all bound up in them grave clothes. And, and the people standing around were just like, they were, I'm sure they were stone silent. They, they couldn't move, think, understand it. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. There's coming a day when he's going to say to all of us, come on up. Come forth. All of those that have already died out of the grave, Those that are left will be caught up physically without dying. Usually when people preach John 11, they'll mention the fact if he hadn't said Lazarus come forth, if he had just said come forth, all the dead people would have come out of the graves. (laughs) I don't know about that for sure, but uh, I do know here he's, he's, he's talking about everybody knows Jesus. Well, The blessed event of his return. 
The Bible says that in Revelation 21 and verse 23, that the greatest thing about heaven is going to be who we're going to be with. Speaking of that great city, the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp, its light is the Lamb. Everywhere from Genesis to Revelation, where there's any description of the physical presence of God, it's always a light. It's glory, like unbelievable glory. The sun is, doesn't even come close. You know, they say that people actually get sick sometimes in the wintertime to get depressed because of a lack of sunlight and staying inside and less light during the day. It's called sunlight-affected depression. Ain't going to be any of that in the New Jerusalem. No, because of who's there. Oh, it will be a day of resurrection. It will be an ev- the event of Christ's return. Number three, it will be the occasion of our reunion. The occasion of our reunion. Well, we've seen it already. We're not to sorrow as those who have no hope. Why? We're going to see those people that we know that believed in Jesus. We're going to see them again. Over the years, I've had this question come to me many, many times. Will we really know each other in heaven? You're doggone right, we will. You may have to look a second time at me because I'll have a full head of hair. But uh, you will recognize me and I will recognize you. It's our reunion day. You go back to Genesis chapter 25 and verse 8. Way back in the first book of the Bible, when Abraham died, what does it say about Abraham? And Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man (coughs) and full of years, and was gathered to his people. They didn't have much revelation back then. But the scripture says they knew it was a day of reunion to come. It'll be a day of reunion. And the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You know, I'm looking forward to meeting people I've never met. Historical figures, biblical figures, people in my own family that I've heard about that I I don't remember or didn't get a chance to know. A grandmother, grandfather possibly, great-grandmother, you know, who knows? The resurrection of those that died precede, and then... We are caught up together. Now, the word caught up here is a word which means literally snatched away. Plucked up. And we will join the resurrected one. I mean, if the Lord comes back in our lifetime. If not, we'll be on the other side of this. But uh, if we're still living, and that's our hope right now, We'll join those 
that have passed on. Then that brings us to number four. Not only will it be a day of resurrection, the day of Christ's return and the occasion of our reunion, but it will be a moment of removal. Snatched up. Removed from this earth. Removed from this world. If he comes back in our lifetime. Wouldn't that be something? Just like, just like Elisha was whisked to heaven in that chariot of fire or Enoch, who God translated. A whole generation of believers gone from this world. Those that are living when he returns will be snatched away. Snatched away from what? Snatched away from a sin-cursed earth. Snatched away from a sin-cursed existence. We all have that sin nature we're battling every day. To become like Jesus, the scripture says, when we see him, we'll be like him. Wow. Now, if you don't get sick and tired of being sick and tired of living in this world, and I think a lot of us are right there in that frame of mind right now, then you don't have quite the excitement (laughs) that's generated by this verse that you should have. You're going to be removed from here. And you're going, you know, the old expression says, he went to a better place. Yes, a far, far better place. Christians will be removed from this world prior to the ravages of the Antichrist and the wrath of God during the tribulation period. Very small little segment of time. As you look at the chart here, the Old Testament period lasted a long time. The New Testament period, we don't know how long it's going to last. It's not over yet. But when Jesus comes at the rapture, He's coming just in the air. He's not coming to earth. He's coming that he might give the shout and he might give the call to the trumpet and the dead in Christ rise first and then we're caught up together to be with them in the air and we ascend back to heaven and we are spared the ravages of the tribulation period and in particular the wrath of God when it's poured out on this earth. Do we have that? Uh, verse on 1 Thessalonians 5. There we go. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't put us upon this earth that we might be here during the time in which he pours out his wrath upon this earth, which is what he will do once... The time comes when the final rebellions take place and the battle of Armageddon is on the horizon. So what will it be like when the rapture happens? I ran across this article. What will happen to America after the rapture? Just to give you some thought of what might happen. It says, when the rapture occurs, every single American who is born again, is a born again believer in Jesus Christ will suddenly disappear. Like that. We're told in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 51, it'll happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. We have that one. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 verse. 
in a moment, in a twinkling of eyes. So I, I have read, and I don't know where this comes from. Behold, Paul says, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll tell you a mystery. There we go. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. But we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. And there's where I said, I've read where <coughs> some people estimate the twinkling of an eye, one-fiftieth of a second. In other words, one moment someone will be there, and the next moment they won't. If a believer and an unbeliever are standing side by side in a conversation, <coughs> it will appear as if the believer just disappeared like that. They probably won't be aware of all the rest going on. Well, think of how dramatically, says the author, and I don't have the author's name. This comes from Tyndale.com. But think how dramatically life in the United States has changed after we lost some 3,000 Americans on September 11, 2001. The way of travel was changed. Our conduct to foreign policy changed. Our economy changed. The government institutions changed. Many areas of life changed. Uh, it's difficult to categorize, categorize them all or list them all. Now imagine, he says, in the U.S., if the U.S. lost a million people in the blink of an eye, or five million, or 25 million, whatever the number would be of Christians. He said, if you're riding in a car down the road uh, and you're a believer, suddenly... The car would have no driver. If there were unsafe people in the car, they would be in big trouble. Uh, you think about flying in an airplane and the pilot's raptured. Now, it's not a good thing for anybody who's left on that plane. In fact, it's not a good thing for anybody left on this earth when the church is called away. Well... He says the impact would be catastrophic across all walks of life. He said, think of the fact that millions of people would suddenly and irretrievably lose spouse, children, parents, friends, colleagues, neighbors, and other loved ones. No long illnesses to get one prepared, no dead bodies to identify, no human way for closure. Consider the horror that will be experienced by millions of people who long described themselves as Christians, but suddenly realized they weren't really born again. Well, he goes on and on. I, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing. He talks about the terror that unbelievers will have that heard this, the truth and didn't respond to it. He talks about the economic devastation, the people that won't be here to pay their mortgages and Businesses that won't be here to pay their invoices, all, all the rest. Taxpayers that won't be here to fund the government. He says the United States will likely be devastated if, of course, there's enough people that are believers. <clears throat> but Satan has done a good job of preparing the world for this event. <clears throat> you like Star Trek? I like Star Trek. The old one more than anything else. You like Star Wars? I like the first three of them, and I got lost. I don't know. I don't know what's going on since then, but it's still okay to watch it. It's just an adventure. It's a fantasy. 
You see, and I'm not proposing any sort of human conspiracy theory, but there is a satanic force at work in this world that is preparing a world for the events that are going to happen. And the world probably is going to be convinced that there was some sort of alien invasion, some sort of weapon from outer space, something that took care of it. And they'll probably say they got rid of the worst bunch of people they could have. They wiped them Christians out. So you ought to be happy. And people will, people believe that stuff. They'll believe it. By the way, resurgence and discussion about UFOs here of lately. Stuff appearing on radar cannot be explained and all the rest. There is a spiritual realm out there. Demons can impersonate dead people. They can impersonate objects in the atmosphere. Satan is called the, the power of the air. The world's being prepared. And when the Antichrist comes on the scene, they're going to follow him lock, stock, and barrel. You're going to accept the explanations. But it'll be a day of removal for us. By the way, anybody ever been to the Creation Museum, Cincinnati? If you ever go back, or if you haven't went and you want to go, go to the Creation Museum and try to figure out the day, look at their schedule, figure out the day that Dr. Danny Faulkner is giving his talk on UFOs and aliens. And go to that. Now, I knew Dr. Faulkner, you know, uh, he, in fact, he went to my, I met him at a conference that did it in, in the, <coughs> over in the, uh, well, my brother lives in Waxhaw. I don't know. It's the closest. It's south of, of, uh, Charlotte. Danny Faulkner is a, was a professor at the University of South Carolina, uh, one of their branches, uh, University of South Carolina, Lancaster, where he taught for 26 years. He's a, he's a professor emeritus from there. He left there. He's now at the Creation Museum. <clears throat> when we were there, I, I just wanted to hear Danny Faulkner because I knew him. And this is what he was talking about. That lecture is, I'm going to see if I can get it in print. I don't know if it's in print. If you ever go there, you need to, uh, you need to hear him uh, give that uh, lecture. It's about an hour, and then you, you'll walk out of there saying, huh, I'll be doggone. It's not like Hollywood says after all. Well, we'll receive immortal bodies, and we'll be caught up to be together with the Lord forever. And so he winds up by saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. I've given you four reasons. There's our comfort. When the world seems to be coming apart, when your personal situation is difficult, when you're in pain, suffering, when you're in need, when you're tired, when you're sick and tired, <clears throat> here's our comfort. But you know what? It's only a comfort to those who trust in Jesus Christ for Savior. It's not a comfort to those who do not know Him. It is a terrible, terrible prospect. If you do not know Him as Savior, put your faith in Him. Turn to Jesus before it is too late. The scripture says what it says, means what it says. We take it literally. We interpret it as any one would take a piece of writing and understand the grammar and the words and put it together. This is what it says. He's coming back. He died for the sins of mankind. He's coming back to receive his own. You either make the cut or you don't. 
Uh, that's a solemn, solemn thing to consider as we come to meet you.